Amen. So in this series, we've talked about different aspects of his presence. And even though we've covered a lot, as I was finishing this, this sermon this past week, I thought, man, I feel like we haven't even touched, like scratched the surface of this topic of his presence. And I was just thinking of a lot of other um, stories and messages. And I thought, Lord, we, I feel like we haven't done this series justice. And I just, I, I was reminded his presence is limitless. We can spend the rest of our, our, our Sundays talking about his presence. So, um, but the one thing I want you guys to take away from this series is that stewarding his presence has to be the most important thing in our life. Listen, above going to work, above taking care of our kids, above our relationship with our spouses, and those things are important, but listen, you cannot, many people are looking for their spouse to give them security. They're looking for their spouse to give them peace. If my husband is not talking to me a certain way, is not responding on the right amount of times, not throwing out the trash, then I can't, I can't be, I can't have peace in the house. You see how we look to people and things to give us something that only God can give us? Look, you're married to a human. I don't know why we're talking about marriage, but you're married to a human being who's broken, who's had issues growing up, has issues right now. They cannot consistently give you these things. They can give, give them to you in, in short spurts and amounts of time, but they can't give you this continuing only God. The reason why stirring his presence is so important because God can only give us the things that we need. He is our foundation. So I want to ask uh, about stewarding his presence. I'm going to ask you a question. If you were to look at the Bible, just kind of look throughout the Bible, who do you think, who are some of the people, or who do you think is the person who best stewarded God's presence in their life? Now, before you answer, I'm going to give you just a few um, contenders for this award of the person who best stewarded God's presence. We have Moses. Moses was one of the first people mentioned in the Bible. He's a man who led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Two different times, he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. During each of those times, he was in God's presence. He spoke with God. Both times, God gave him the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that uh, God would speak to Moses face to face. The word says the way a man speaks to another man, God would speak to Moses. And I wanted to clarify this because several weeks ago we talked about how God showed Moses, uh, he wouldn't show Moses, uh, wouldn't show Moses his face, but he showed him his back. And, but in this verse it says that God would, would speak to Moses face to face. Just a little theology. I believe that God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to man the way that God spoke to Abraham when those three men came to visit him. Two men were angels. One we believe was a theophany or the son of God. Another person who spoke with God face to face was Joshua when the angel of, of um, God's army, the captain of God's army came and spoke to him. Theologians believe that he spoke to Joshua uh, face to face, that that was the son of God, that that was a pre-incarnate Jesus. So yes, Moses saw the back. What, what Moses was not allowed to see was the father in his full glory. No man can see God in his full glory in our sinful flesh and survive. So what I believe Moses did is he spoke with the pre-incarnate Jesus face-to-face. So anyways, I know that was a little, maybe too much theology, but I wanted just to clear that up. Um, God had a personal relationship with Jesus, so he was in his presence a lot. Another person was David. 
David was called a man after God's own heart. This is a man that was given that title that this person most, uh, can, most possesses the type of heart that God has. And he served God so well that God promised David that he would have a son on his throne for all time. And that was fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is going to reign on his throne. He's called the son of David. He's going to reign on his throne forever. Who's another person, the apostle Paul. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You would think that somebody who wrote two-thirds of the Bible was probably pretty close to God, right? Was probably stewarded his presence really well. Another person was uh, uh, Apostle John. He wrote the book of Revelation. The Revelation is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and it contains the end-time events of what's going to happen. Another person was Enoch. Enoch walked with God. He is one of two people who never died. The Bible says Enoch walked for God, with God for 300 years, and then God took him. And I think, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think he walked with God so closely that God said, I don't want flesh to separate us anymore. I'm just going to bring you to heaven. So we have different men and women throughout the Bible who walked with God, who had a relationship. So of all those people, who do you think best stewarded the presence of God in their lives? Yeah, somebody said it. It's somebody I didn't mention Jesus. Jesus stewarded God's presence better than anyone else who has ever lived. And you might say, but okay, but Jesus is God. I mean, he kind of has an unfair advantage, right? Of course, he's going to steward. He's gonna, he has God. He has the same power that God has. And so that isn't really, yeah, okay, yeah, obviously that's the right answer. But how about a man? Well, here's the deal about Jesus. Jesus wasn't just 100% God. He was 100% percent man. Jesus had to be 100% man in order for him to be the sacrifice for our sins because only a, a man who lived a perfect life could take our place. See, that's how it works. The reason that we can't die for our sins is because we're already tainted, but somebody who is perfect could take our place and take our punishment and we could take on his righteousness. I'm going, to read some, I'm going to read a few verses uh, just to, to illustrate that. And the reason I want to read it is because if you don't believe that Jesus was 100% man, then you can't believe that he can help you with what you're going through. Because if he wasn't really a man, wasn't really human, then he can't identify with your issues and your problems. You can say, well, he was God. He doesn't understand. No, Jesus was 100, is 100% man. He is fully God and fully man. I want to read a few verses. Hebrews 2, verse 14. This is the New Living Translation. It says, Because God's children are human beings, that's us, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way, in him becoming fully human, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying? Verse 16. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham, those who have faith in Jesus, faith in God. Therefore, watch this, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. He had to be made fully like us. A human, blood, bones, thoughts, emotions so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice. Only after he was made like us could he offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Watch this, verse 18. 
Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. It's very clear in this passage that Jesus was made just like us. And because he lived a life the way that we lived life, he encountered the same struggles that we went through. Do you know Jesus went through puberty? Do you know Jesus had the same type of emotions that we went through? And I had this thought as I was preparing the message. Do you think Jesus, when he was growing up with his brothers, his uh, natural brothers and his friends, and he saw them getting married, having kids, do you think Jesus at some point wanted a family? Listen, if he truly was a human, there's no doubt he wanted that. There's no doubt. But he realized he had a greater calling than just having a family. He was on a mission to save the world, to save us from our sins. Talk about he. Jesus deserves so much praise. I mean, he could have easily, he was, he was sinless. He was perfect. He was a son of God. He could have done anything he wanted, but he had us on his mind as he was walking this earth. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every way has been tempted as we are, yet he didn't sin. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In the verses before this, it talks about how we are called to suffer wrongdoing and to trust God who is able to uh, judge righteously and rightly for us. He's going to give us justice at the right time, but we're called to suffer. And he says that Jesus was our example. He showed us how to do it. And on top of that, look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit or lies found in his mouth. Not only was he our example on how to deal with these situations, he never sinned. As I was, again, going through this message, it hit me on a different level how Jesus was fully human. But because he was so surrendered to the Father, he had the power to overcome every temptation. That, sep- that puts him in a completely different category than us, which means he really does deserve all praise and all glory because he completely overcame sin. It's just amazing. So he never sinned. What do we know about sin? We're talking about the presence of God, stewarding his presence. What do we know about sin? What is one of the major consequences of sin? Se- thank you. Separation. When we engage in sin, when we are doing things we shouldn't be doing, we are creating this separation. We may not be completely separated because we're saved, but the more sin we have in our life, the more separation we have, which means if we take away sin, then we have less separation. Watch this. Because Jesus never sinned, he was never separated from the Father. Because Jesus never sinned, he always lived in the Father's presence. This is why he has the title of the person who stewarded God's presence better than anyone else, because he never sinned. And because he never sinned, there was never any separation between him and the Father. So let me ask you this question. What is the key to never being separated from God? To not sin, right? 
If we cannot, if we can learn to sin less and less, then we can have more of him. Well, how do you not sin? How do you not sin? Where do we learn about sin? Okay, let's start there. Where do we learn about sin? In God's word, right? So we read God's word, and if we keep God's word, then we won't sin. Is that right? If the Bible says don't steal, and you say, okay, it says don't steal. Okay, I'm going to stop taking pens from work. I'm going to stop um, saying I clocked in at a certain time when I really didn't. I knew I'd get y'all a laugh on the first one, but not the second one. That one hit a little too close to home. If we can learn to read God's word and, and keep it, then we won't sin, right? What's another word for keeping God's word? Obeying God's word. Listen, listen. The key to living in God's presence is obedience. Because if we are to have, if we want to, uh, if we want to have God in our life, then we have to obey him because we know that disobedience is sin. And when we disobey, we create separation with us. Jesus perfectly stewarded the presence of God because he perfectly obeyed God. This is why he stewarded it, because he didn't sin at one point. He perfectly did what God wanted in his life. Well, what was God's plan for his life? Look at John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, not what I want, but the will of him who sent me. What was the Father's will? What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John three sixteen. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved us so much that he gave his son. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn us. The devil's already doing that. Our, uh, our spouse is already doing that. Our in-laws are already doing that. He didn't send his son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus was sent by God, the Father, into the world to save us. Let me ask you, did he save us? How did he save us? By offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross. We look at Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden and introduced sin to everybody. He sinned and then brought sin into the world. Therefore, we are all sinners. He says, just as that one sinner, that trespass, brought condemnation so one act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification in life for all men. Watch this. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the obedience, one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because of Jesus' obedience to keep the will of the Father, to keep himself sinless, to obey the Father and not sin, he gained the right to be our sacrifice. And Jesus, watch this, had, he had to perfectly obey or he couldn't be our sacrifice. He would have um, disqualified himself. Jesus really did demonstrate the way to steward the, our relationship with the Father. And how was it? Through obedience. Through obedience because when we obey, it keeps sin out of our lives, which keeps separation out. Now, I want to point out something about Jesus' obedience. Look at Hebrews 5 verse 7. It says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. It's just another word to um, pray very humbly. He said, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reference. When did Jesus 
offer up tears to God. Anybody remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was about to be arrested, we're going to read it in a second. He cried and he cried out to God, and it says he was heard. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I want you to leave up that verse for a second. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I remember reading this verse growing up, and I thought, I don't understand this verse. What do you mean that Jesus had to learn something? And this is before I really understood he was fully human. He had to learn just like us. What do you mean he had to learn? He had to learn obedience? I thought he obeyed. I thought he, obviously, I thought he didn't have to learn about obedience because he was perfect. He obeyed perfectly every time. And then I thought suffering, he suffered. What do you mean he suffered? And it took me a while, it took me a while to really understand this verse. And then one day I read it and the Lord kind of gave me a different, he actually, I, he gave me a little bit different um, understanding of it. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this verse, but I'm going to add a few words. Although he was a son, he learned the cost of obedience through what he suffered. He learned what it actually means. What does obedience mean? He learned the cost of obeying through what he suffered, which leads to this question. What is the cost of obedience? This is really important. The cost of obedience is suffering the death of your will. In one of the darkest moments of his life, right before he was about to be arrested, about to be crucified, he was in the garden. We're going to read it. Matthew 26, 38. Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Why was it sorrowful? Because he knew it was about to happen. He knew the mission he was on. 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, if there is any other way for you to save humanity without me going to the cross, please do it. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And then it says, He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, the spirit is willing, my spirit is willing to obey the Father and go all the way to the cross. But my flesh is crying out, I don't want to do it. You know why I think he was crying out? I don't think it's necessarily because of the torture, and he was tortured. He was disfigured, his face was completely disfigured, Isaiah tells us that. Not only was it because he was nailed to a cross and died a horrific death. For all eternity, he had never been separated from the Father. What was the one moment in all of eternity that he was separated? When sin was placed on him and the Father had to look away. Because God can't live with sin. Sin separates. He said the flesh is weak and doesn't want to be separated and, def- and yes, and doesn't want to be tortured. You have to pray. I really believe that if Jesus had not spent time in prayer, he wouldn't have gone to the cross because he was human just like us. Look at 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He prayed again, God, is, is, I know you already told me the first time that this is the only way, but is there another way? 
Jesus learned that if he was going to obey the Father, he had to lay down his will. And not just emotionally, to suffer emotional um, suffering, physical suffering. We feel like we're suffering when we order a meal at a restaurant and the food doesn't come out quick enough. We feel like we're suffering when somebody texts us or we text somebody or reach out to somebody and they'll get back to us right away. We lose our peace over the most embarrassing things. Jesus learned obedience by suffering the death of his will. Listen, if we are to learn to obey God, then we have to learn to suffer the death of our will. What is our will? Our will is that we have the choice to do what we want. If I want to get up at this time, if I want to eat this at lunch, if I want to not go to sleep, or I want to go to sleep, I can do what I want. If we are to learn obedience, then we're going to have to suffer through the death of our will. Listen, we don't have a choice. Church, you don't have a choice anymore. You don't have a choice for what you do, where you go, who you talk to, who you don't talk to. You, when you accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you accepted his life and his lordship over your life. We don't have a choice anymore. And there's too many Christians and churches who set up services and set up their Christian life thinking, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to serve when I want to serve. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do what I want. Listen, you don't have a choice anymore. If there was anyone who deserved a choice, it was Jesus. But he was so surrendered to the Father, he said, not my will, but your will be done. Let me ask you this. Where do you think, why do we think we're not going to struggle? Where do we get this idea that we're not going to go through things? Because the truth is, when God, when we read the word or when somebody's preaching or somebody says something to us that, that we know we're not doing, we should be doing, it is uncomfortable or else we'd be doing it, right? We'd naturally be obeying God's word. But if we're going to obey God, we're going to have to learn to struggle to say no to what we want and yes to God. I had this thought while I was preparing. I thought, if we're not struggling, we're not obeying. Because many times it is a struggle to do the right thing. It is a struggle to do what God wants. It's a struggle to forgive that person who has hurt us many, many times. Jesus suffered. This is so crazy. Jesus suffered and struggled. He suffered and he struggled to do God's will, but he ended up doing it perfectly. Look at John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Jesus telling the disciples and telling us. John 15, 14, next chapter, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus is not a tyrant up in heaven just having a list of things that he wants us to do just so we can do it because he's God. The reason he has commandments, this is so powerful, is because he understands that these commandments help us see the difference between sin and righteousness. And if we can learn to keep those commandments, we can keep sin out of our life. And if we keep sin out of our life, then we can keep God close to us. He's not saying these things just because he's God Almighty. He's saying these things because he loves us. And if we will keep his commandments, if we'll do what he wants, then we'll keep him close to us. We'll keep his presence in our lives. 
That should really change the reason you, keep, you do anything he wants you to do. It's not because, oh, i got to do it because God wants me. No, he's do, we're doing it so that we can keep him close to us. Obedience is a hard thing. And I don't know, I've been kind of like driving this home. But it's also rewarding. Because what happens when we obey? We keep sin away. What happens when we keep sin away? We keep God close. And what happens when we keep God close? He blesses us. We have the blessing of having his presence in our lives. You ever had a friend that... Um, just did so many things for you. I remember I had a friend um, when I was, I still, he's still my friend, but we were like early 20s and there was this watch I wanted to buy and it was like $500. And it was, no, actually it was like 550. And that was, I mean, I was, that's a lot now. Back then it was like $5,000. And I remember looking at this watch and we went to the store and I was like, man, I really want that watch. And he said, you want to buy it for you? I was like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, uh, well, I'll pay you back. No, no, it's okay. Are you sure? I only said it one time. Are you sure? He said, I'll buy it. And he bought it for me. And I remember that day, this is the truth. I remember thinking, he just bought a friend for life. Like He, he just bought my friendship because, not because he's getting me things. He's proven his love for me. You see, the reason we have, the reason that we want God in our life it's because in his presence, in our relationship with him, he blesses us. This is why we obey him. This is why we keep sin out of our life, because of what he brings. So, yes, obedience is very hard because it's fighting our flesh, but it's rewarding. I want to end with this story. It's a story in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's in a story about a, a Syrian um, commander. So, not Israeli. Not, this wasn't the nation of Israel. It was about a man who, who had leprosy, and he came to Israel to find healing. Okay, verse 1 of 2 Kings 5, it says this, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, leprosy was a very bad thing. It was a skin-eating disease. It's still uh, present in the world, but not as prevalent. Back then, if you had, there wasn't, before modern medicine, there wasn't a way to treat leprosy. And so it was a skin-eating disease. If it wasn't treated, you would lose your fingers, you would lose uh, your, your extremities, you would lose your ear, you would lose your nose. It was the skin-eating disease, and this man had it. So it was kind of like a death sentence. You couldn't do anything, really. And it was uh, contagious. Verse 2, now the, Syrian, uh, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, the little girl said to Naaman's wife, said, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This little girl had heard of a man named Elisha who had performed many miracles. He performed a lot of them, but one of them that he was most known for was he raised a little boy back to life. The little boy had died, had been dead for a while, and he was raised back to life. And so I'm sure that she, the word doesn't, doesn't record this, but I'm sure she told some of these miracles. Verse 4, so Naaman, the wife told Naaman, it doesn't record that because we know that's what always happens anyways. So Naaman went in, it's a little joke, and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Basically, he took a lot of money and a lot of fancy clothes as a gift in exchange for healing. 
And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, so Naaman brought the letter, and it, he read the letter, and it said this. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. He's telling this, hey, he's reading this letter. Imagine you're the, you're the king, and this, this foreign, um, this foreign uh, leader comes to you, and you're reading this, and it says he's asking you to cure this man. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Am I a doctor? Do I, have I found the cure to leprosy to come and he, so I can heal this man? He says, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure his man of his leprosy? Only consider how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He said, This has got to be a joke. I think he's just trying to create a controversy so that we can maybe go to war or something. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, and he said this to the king, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, Naaman, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash Naaman in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. He says, Naaman, all you have to do, and I don't know if you caught this, but Elisha didn't come himself. He sent his servant, which I'm sure was surprising to to Naaman, which we'll read in a second. He says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. When you come up, you'll be made whole. Look at Naaman's response. But Naaman, verse 11, was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he, not his servant, would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, God, his God, and wave his hand over the place where I have leprosy and cure me. He said, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He said, where is Elisha? Who are you? I came to see the prophet. Don't you know who I am? I'm a commander in my king's service. He said, surely Elisha is supposed to come out and do some kind of incantation or say some kind of prayer and so I can be healed. And he says, you want me to wash in the Jordan? And the Jordan River um, was historically known kind of as of a dirty river. And I actually um, did a little research. Uh, there are parts of the Jordan River now that are um, very, very toxic. They're very, um, they're not really safe to get in. And we know this because the, 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 the Jordan actually flows into the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea for a reason. Um, and so he's saying, you want me to go in the Jordan River? Really? I came all this way? I could have just dipped in one of the rivers in my hometown. What happened with Naaman? Why was he so upset? I believe he was upset because he came with certain expectations on how he would be healed. And when the story began to unfold, he realized that he wasn't going to be healed the way that he wanted. Listen carefully. Many people not only leave God, but will leave a church because their expectations were not met. Well, they didn't talk to me. Well, I don't like how long worship goes. What are we even doing? I don't like that song. The pastor didn't say hello to me. We get mad at God. God, how come you didn't answer my prayer request? 
Don't you know what I'm going through? He didn't heal her. She died. You have these expectations for God. We expect things from the church, and we say, well, I don't, want, I don't have to go to church every Sunday. I know you talked earlier about being part of the body, but that's not part of my schedule. I don't want to serve. I don't want to sit and serve. But how come I have to be at church two times? I don't want to forgive. I don't want to let go of that relationship. I like that relationship. I want to hold on to that relationship. I know I got married, but I'm tired of them. Ultimately, you know what we're saying? I don't want to obey. I want what I want because it makes me feel good. No, I'm going to do it. I don't want to submit. He had expectations for how his healing would come about. And when it started to look differently than what he wanted, he said, I don't want to do this. He said, don't you know I'm unclean? You want me to jump in an unclean water and be clean? That doesn't make any sense. This was Jesus when he was in the garden. He says, it isn't, I don't want to do this. I'm going to be separated from the Father. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be humiliated in front of all these people that I've healed, people that have said who have loved me, that I've loved. And I know they're going to turn their back on me. And that's many of us. Jesus obeyed, but many of us say, I don't want to obey. I don't want to comply. The Christian life is really about continually learning to do things we don't want to do. I hope you understand that sitting here. This is important. The Christian life is about constantly and continually being asked to do things you don't want to do. You don't have a choice. You don't have a will. And yes, we walk with people. I'm not saying we do everything right away because there is a process. And thank God, there's mercy. But at the end of the day, everyone who walked through this door has a decision. Am I going to surrender my will and begin to do things that I don't want to do? And guess what? Sometimes those commands are going to come straight from God. Sometimes they're going to come through me. Sometimes they're going to come through your friend. Sometimes they're going to come through a brother or sister. Many times they'll come through your spouse because that's why God gave you your spouse to make you more like him. They're going to come through somebody and you're going to have to make a decision if you're going to surrender your will and do what God wants and have more of his presence in your life or you're going to disobey and try to do things your way apart from his presence. The Christian life really is about doing things that we don't want to do. But going back to what I said earlier, who said we weren't supposed to suffer? We're called to suffer. The difference is, well, here's the, here's the truth. You're going to suffer doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. You're going to go through hard times. Like, until we get to heaven, we're going to go through some hard things. The difference is you can have fruit, suffering, and obedience, or you can have no fruit at the end of it, suffering and disobedience. Can I just say this? Let your suffering count. Let it count for something. Let it count for righteousness. You may not see it right away. When you obey today, you may not see the fruit of it tonight or tomorrow or next week, but you will see it one day because you're honoring the Lord and you're allowing him to come closer to you. So Naaman had, was upset. He said, I don't think, I don't understand how this is going to work. Like many of us, I understand why I'm supposed to obey. Why am I supposed to do this? I don't think, I'm, I, don't think I should. This was him, but look how his servants responded. 
But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He's spoken this great thing. Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Look at the wisdom of his servants. He said, you came all this way. It's a miracle already to be cured of leprosy. He's asking you to do this a certain way. Why don't you just do it? But what if Naaman had people around him who were just yes men or friends who just liked to hear him complain? He, he could have had friends like we have friends and, and that said, yeah, what are you doing? You don't jump in that river. You're more important than that. I don't, God's not going to heal you. Or maybe that God is not worth serving because he's asking you to do something that you don't want to do. It's really, it's really important who you have around you. But he had people who spoke truth to him and said, has he really said, wash and be clean? What was Naaman's response? Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself Seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, according to the word of the Lord. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What happened? Naaman fought a little bit like us, and that's okay. We can kick and scream. We can complain a little bit. But the the end thing he did was he obeyed. Because Naaman obeyed, the Spirit of God came, his presence came and restored Naaman's flesh and got rid of the leprosy because he obeyed. Because he obeyed. Yes, obedience is hard, but the end result of obedience is more of God's presence in our lives. And we have more of his presence. We see more of his miracles and see more of his healing and more of his blessing, more of his peace when we obey The key to stewarding God's presence is obedience. So I want to ask you, is there something that God has been asking you to do in your life for the past week, the past few months, the past year that you haven't done? I know that as I've been talking, the Holy Spirit has just been bringing things to your memory. If we want more of his presence, if we want to steward his presence in our life, we're going to have to learn to lay down our will and sometimes suffer, many times suffer, the death of our will, and have more of his presence in our life.